How do we know God is even real? Are the Gospels even reliable? Where do I go for answers? What is Christian apologetics? Welcome to the Reason Together podcast. place for your apologetic questions with Walter Falcon. It's been about two weeks since we last met. Just a refresher on what we talked about. Does objective truth exist? And we looked at some claims against that. We looked at does God exist? And we went over the Kalam cosmological argument for that one. Now before we can conclude whether a creator God has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ and his apostles. We need to figure out if divine intervention is even possible. One of the biggest hurdles people have with becoming a Christian is Christianity is a religion of miracles. We as Christians believe that God became a man, he changed water into wine, he raised a man from the dead, cast out multiple demons out of humans, healed a man of leprosy, then died in the form of crucifixion and rose three days later then appeared to more than 500 people. Many people find this idea horrendous and impossible. But what if I told you those are not the greatest miracles in Christianity? Wait! Do not turn me off. This is not blasphemy, and let me tell you why. The greatest miracle has already occurred in Christianity. We call it the creation. Genesis 1-1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In science, they call it the Big Bang. Whichever way you look at it, they line up together. The fact is that everything came into being through nothing physical nor natural. There is no cause in the world or universe that caused this explosion of everything we know and see in the ever-expanding universe. This is no doubt the greatest conceivable thing that has ever happened because, like last time we talked, that scientists and philosophers can't hide behind the idea of an eternal universe. So with that, we have to look at the fact in the face and conclude what is the most reasonable explanation for why there is something rather than nothing. If Genesis 1-1 is a fact, then Jesus being resurrected from the dead in his own power is at least possible. I don't think I need to defend the Big Bang Theory or Genesis 1-1. It is the most accepted theory of the origin of the universe. But I want to play a little sound clip for you. It's by J. Warner Wallace, who is the number one leading cold case homicide detective in the United States. He has been on Dateline more than any other cold case homicide detective. Here's that clip. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now you hear that word Big Bang, a lot of people in the church are like, oh, I don't believe that stuff. Big Bang, I don't believe that's like, that's that atheist stuff. No, actually, the Big Bang is intriguing to me as a Christian. This idea that everything had a beginning has to be explained. And this term we use called the Big Bang is really just a term we're talking about that everything has a a moment of cosmic singularity in which everything we see in the universe leaps into existence. And when I say everything we see in the universe, I'm talking about everything, right? Because if there's a big bang, well, every big bang requires a big banger. I just happen to know who that is. 
right? So I'm not uptight about this idea that science demonstrates that everything leapt into existence from nothing. I'm not upset about that at all. And when I say everything from nothing, what I mean is everything, space, time, and matter comes into existence from nothing. And that means that whatever starts that cannot be made up of that stuff. You cannot create yourself. That means I'm looking for a big banger that is not made up of the stuff of the universe because that's what begins to exist at the beginning of the universe. Those elements do not exist prior to the beginning. That's what all science demonstrates. That means I'm looking for a non-spatial, non-temporal, non-material big banger. Think about it. If the stuff in the room is space, time, and matter, I'm already outside the room for the first explanation, right? So I want to just dispel you of your nervousness about Big Bang cosmology. The standard cosmological model is indeed called the Big Bang Theory. Here's what I don't mean when I say that I believe in the Big Bang. I'm not saying that I believe in the theory of evolution. These are two completely different theories. One theory talks about the origin of the universe. The other talks about change over time in the universe. These are not the same thing. Also, I am not suggesting that because I believe in the Big Bang, that I believe that the universe is a particular age. How long ago did that happen? That's open for discussion. I don't think there's anything more I can say than what Jay Warner Wallace has already stated. Now we need to talk about the reliability of the New Testament and its writers. We will look at, can we conclude what the original text stated, the stipulations for a successful conspiracy, and would the writers have any motivation for lying about what happened? People say things like we don't know what the original text said because it has been translated and translated and by now it's like a long game of telephone. But this is not how translating the Bible works. People spend years learning Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. They go back to the oldest manuscripts of the text in which we have and translate from its original language. Or people bring up the overzealous scribes argument where they claim, couldn't what we have today be an over-exaggeration of what the original text said because when the scribes were copying it, they might have embellished what it said and made Jesus more godlike? Again, this is a misconception about how texts were copied back then. Let's say that we have 12 scribes. We give the original to the first one and he copies it down and then keeps recopying it from that copy in which he has written. Then we take the original and give it to the second scribe and he copies it and then starts copying it from his first copy. And then we give the original to the third scribe and he copies it and then he recopies it from his first one. And we keep doing this all the way through all 12 scribes. So the problem with the overzealous scribe theory is that one of these scribes copied the text wrong and made Jesus more godlike. But let's say each scribe made 12 copies. So 12 scribes copied 12 times. That's 144 copies. And 12 of the copies would state something different from the other 132 copies of those 144 because one of those scribes were overzealous and changed it. The 12 would stick out like a sore thumb. And that scribe and his copies would have been discarded. It is totally unreasonable to think that that scribe got a hold of the other 132 copies and changed them all. 
wouldn't if you wrote out the book of let's say Matthew 12 times and then you go and read the text you would clearly remember what you wrote out and know that it has been changed that is the problem with the idea of it being changed by scribes Josh McDowell said the vast number of early handwritten copies of the New Testament ensures we can reconstruct the original with tremendous confidence. Modern editors of ancient books are often based on just a few existing copies, sometimes fewer than 10. Still, scholars are confident that the present versions of those non-biblical books accurately reflect the originals. In terms of the number of manuscripts, the New Testament dwarfs all other ancient writers. There are over 5,800 partial or whole Greek New Testament manuscripts. If copies of other languages are included, the number jumps to roughly 24,000. The existing copies of the New Testament are remarkably close to the date of original composition. Most ancient works have a gap of more than 700 years, with some work such as Plato and Aristotle being twice that. In contrast, fragments of John date within 40 years of its writing, and a near-complete copy of the New Testament within 100 to 150 years of composition, which is the Chester Betty Papyra. Still people try and go back further than the scribes and claim apostles conspired together to make Jesus more extravagant than he was, but they don't meet any criteria of a successful conspiracy. To have a good conspiracy, you need a small group of people with good communication lines between them. Because if there's a lot of people you hinge your lie on, then you have to get a lot more people to lie for you. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it states that he, Jesus, appeared to more appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them were still alive at the time of the writing, but some have fallen asleep. All you would have to do is find a couple of those 500 to say Jesus never appeared to them. Then it would quickly crumble, and they need to have a good line of communications because they have to keep their story straight. And we do see some minor inconsistencies in the gospel accounts, but they are what are expected from eyewitnesses. If someone said that Lecrae gave a concert, and someone else said Lecrae and Andy Minio gave a concert, would we say that Lecrae never gave a concert because someone left out a smaller detail like Andy Minio? He isn't that famous. Why would we always bring him into it? What if someone doesn't like Andy Minio, and they just like Lecrae? They wouldn't tell you about going to see someone they don't like. They would be more happy and excited about the person that they do like. And they would get the facts of that line straight. The fact is, Lecrae gave a concert. But the gospel, or the Bible, was written on three continents and around 1500 years in three different languages. And there isn't any major contradictions. Yeah, there are some like inconsistencies of how old a king was when he became a king. 2 Kings 8.26 Isaiah was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athalina, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Or 2 Chronicles 22-2. Isaiah was 42 years old when he became king and he reigned one year. His mother's name was with Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. Yeah, that might have been an error in the original text, 
but important detail is still true. He became king for one year. It is more of a testament to the scribes that they copied what they got. Instead of fixing it, I am glad it is left in today in our Bibles because we would not want to change the text, but we can make footnotes and clarify that he was 22 because Isaiah's father, Joram, reigned for eight years after beginning his reign at age 32. Joram was 40 when he died, showing that Isaiah could not have been 42, but was instead 22 when he began to reign, because he took over right after his father died, and his father died at age 40. He can't be older than his father. According to J. Warner Wallace, who you've already heard, there's only three motives for anything someone does. Money, sex, or power. Let's look at this. Paul was thanking people for gifts, whatever those gifts might be. It might be money, but we do know of times it was just provisions when Paul is imprisoned. Next, we look at did the disciples get more sexual favors? No, the contrary. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 said, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I have warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They thought that a man is to be married before having sex, and he is to be a man of one wife. Or there is Paul, who said, Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. In 1 Corinthians 7 and 8, he never was married and taught that sex before marriage was wrong. So therefore, probably did not get a lot of sexual favors. Probably not. Now let's look at power. Were the apostles powerful in their times? No, a good handful of them were killed for their faith. And some, like Paul, spent a lot of time in prison. I believe that Sean McDowell stated that we have a solid case for four of the apostles and good evidence for two more. So that would be a total of six apostles who were martyred for their faith and never recanted. I might be wrong in the numbers. I do know it is not all 12 who were martyred. But if you would like to find out more on this subject, Sean McDowell has his new book out called The Fate of the Apostles, examining the martyrdom accounts of the closest followers of Jesus. Now that we have looked at all four parts, does objective truth exist? Remember, the claims are false. Things like when people say there is no truth to that, we can ask, is that true? If it is not true, then don't listen to it. And if it is true, then it proves there is true. And that's a contradiction. When we looked at does God exist, we looked at the Klom cosmological argument, which goes like whatever began to exist has a cause, and the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Then we looked at are miracles possible, and we concluded that the greatest miracle was the Big Bang or Genesis 1-1. And if that is true, then everything else in the Bible is at least possible. Then we looked at the reliability of the New Testament and the Apostles, and we said they had no motives to lie. According to J. Warner Wallace, that all motives come from three criteria: money, sex, or power, and they got none of them. So we can reasonably conclude that the Bible is reliable and true, and God exists, and he revealed himself through divine intervention. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that lives within you.
Yet, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame.